Welcome and good evening. My name is Cindy Price and I am the Vice Provost for Academic Affairs and I am just here tonight to give you greetings and really particularly for you students, delighted that you are here given the weather outside. It is really nice out there and maybe it will hold off. But really we are here for an important event and the annual lecture for um, talking about issues of deep importance to us titled No Limits, No Boundaries. I think about this, this uh, tonight's lecture coincides with the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I was reflecting back to that time. I was somewhat recently out of college. And I'm thinking particularly about language and how the language of disability was prevalent in the culture. And more importantly, how it has shifted today. True, we still hear the language of disability, but we are more likely to hear the language of ability. And while people with those different abilities truly benefit, it might well be the culture as a whole that has benefited most in the last 25 years. And we have been able to see and be a part of the gifts that so many people have to offer. So tonight we welcome you. We welcome this conversation of important topics. We hope it will be a fruitful conversation for each and every one of you. So enjoy. We will begin the evening with three pre student presentations, and I believe they will come forward and start us off this evening. Thank you so much for coming. Hello, um, my name is Garrett Mullet. Um, I'm a junior here at Seattle Pacific University, um, and I am majoring in Business Administration, International Economics, and Global Development Studies, so that's super fun. Um, I'm also severely dyslexic, um, reading in the one to three percentile on reading speed. I found that out my senior year of high school. Um, growing up, I kind of I always knew that um, reading especially just took me longer in homework, um, but I was homeschooled, so I was really sheltered from kind of how much dyslexia actually affected me in comparison to um, everyone else that I knew. Um, and so it was really when I went into high school um, that I quickly realized how much longer assignments took me than uh, my fellow classmates. My teachers would tell us, hey, like here's a half an hour reading to do that for like tomorrow, um, yet it would take me two to two and a half hours. So that was really a discouraging time. Um, and I needed to kind of, I reached a point where I had to make a decision of how I was going to react. Um, I could either use dyslexia as um, as an excuse and a reason just to not try and to give up um, or really take it as a challenge and work um, really hard to just kind of put myself on the level of everyone else. Um, so I did, I worked hard. Um, I learned to have a really, really good worth ethic um, from a pretty young age. Um, I, like, I did well in school. It took me a whole lot longer than all my classmates, um, but I was able to do well. Um, and also, rather than be embarrassed about being dyslexic, I chose just to embrace it as part of who I was. Um, although most of my, <laughs> pretty much everyone in my school um, was subjected to my attempts of reading over the loudspeaker um, because I was the class president and the ASSP president and that was part of my role. Um, so it was a very public knowledge. I decided not to try to get out of that, but just to accept it. Um, and everyone knew that that was part of, part of me. Um, I went to my graduation speech and kind of walked up and shuffled my papers and then said, who am I kidding? We all know this isn't going to help me. Kind of using it as little notes right now, but clearly I was going to read and I'm not anymore because <laughs> it doesn't actually work very well. Um, generally by accepting my lack of ability to read, um, read out loud or read quickly um, and focus on the things that I am good at, um, I've learned to not be ashamed of those that I'm not. Um, about halfway through my high school experience, um, I was first introduced to kind of my first accommodations. I 
started getting audiobooks. Um, and that was a huge step where I realized, oh my gosh, things can, <laughs> I can, I can get some of these things done. So I actually ended up starting to take, um, I took advanced placement English classes just to try to prepare myself for college. Um, but I was still, even having taken those classes, I was really worried about what it was going to be like actually coming to school. Um, I was really worried that I'd be overwhelmed with the workload and I wouldn't be able to um, pass. I really had this goal of, okay, just get into school. I can just pass my classes and graduate, get out with a degree. That's all I want to do. Um, but, but essentially, after showing up to um, SPU, um, realizing that the worth ethic that I had developed um, and the amazing resources that I've got from the Center for Learning with extended time on testing and audiobooks and digital copies of just about anything that I'd need to read um, have actually enabled me to not only pass my classes but really excel. Um, hence the triple major and trying deciding to stay here for a fifth year, thinking that was a good idea. Um, so ultimately, disabilities are diverse. Um, are diverse and the process of dealing with them is unique to each person um, and it can be a learning experience um, if you really just understand um, that process. Um, by increasing our understanding about, about them, we can turn something that the world sees as a weakness into a strength. And I really do believe that, that because of my dys, um, dyslexia, I have learned um, to work hard, I've learned to um, work with the Center for Learning. I earlier tonight realized I had a book that uh, I didn't see on my syllabus that I need to read by tomorrow. Chopped it, scanned it, turned it into um, a PDF that's readable and that's what I'll do as soon as I leave here tonight. <laughs> so essentially just learning to use the resources that we have um, and make them as effective as possible. So thank you very much. Disability? Um, disability. Um, disability means to me. Um, I don't know. Shoot. <laughs> That's tough. Can I start over? <laughs> oh, wow. You really got me there. Disability is physical, mental, something that society views you as you're not able to function as well. Disability means really anything that interferes with your normal day-to-day -day life. Uh, it means your life is harder. Like a lot of times when I think of disability, I think of something that's happened to someone that, you know, um, that they, they didn't intend to happen to them in their life. Yeah. Um, they're maybe born with a disability and they have to work through that the rest of their lives. So they have to make the necessary sacrifices um, and changes throughout their, their day and their lives to accommodate. Um, like what has happened to them, right? Or an accident that's happened. Um, maybe like a war veteran, mm -hmm. uh, something like that along those lines. Um, essentially, someone who needs help through daily things in life. So I work in wellness and health promotion over at Seattle University. Um, really, it's about making things accessible for all for all diverse populations, including, and that does include. Um, all types of disabilities and all types of folks who, who deserve to have the same right as everyone else. Disability means that someone isn't able to do things the way that most people can.
my name is Amanda Banks. I'm a first year student here studying exercise science. Um, and I wanted to share with you just a little bit of my story and some of the reflections that I had. Um, since I was little, I struggled with reading and I loved books, but I hated reading and I didn't really understand why. Um, and getting into high school, like Garrett, I felt like the one to be the last one to finish a homework assignment or the very last person to hand in their test. Um, and that was very frustrating and really struggled with why is this happening. Um, and my junior year, I found out that I was dyslexic. And my first response to that was, yes, this is wonderful. This is great. This is like, oh, it makes so much sense, all this stuff I've been frustrated with um, and the struggles that I've been having. But my second response was quieter and unspoken. It was the doubt, kind of self-doubt of if high school is this hard, like how am I gonna do college? How am I gonna tackle that challenge? Um, and while going through that kind of like anxiety, I had been already uh, experiencing dis depression and just those kind of struggles. And so I wrote a little, or let me rewind. This year I kind of um, experienced a very like great switch um, in those uh, like depressive feelings and things going backwards and really uh, having like a revelation. And so I, I wrote this short piece um, kind of to express that and what the change was like and what it was like before. So it's called Merely Three. I am alive today because God gave me a mental slideshow, a flip book of pictures filled with people who loved me. These barra the, this barrage of faces followed every serious suicidal contemplation. And at this time, it felt like shackles, trapped between bars of depression with one small escape route. The one sliver of possible relief from complete enclosure snapped shut as I considered the hearts of family members, friends, coaches, and classmates. Panic thrummed a wild beat as I gripped the bars with hatred in my eyes and the taste of injustice in my mouth. But thank God for soft word, thank God soft words drifted through the barricades and quieted the ball of anxiety raging in my soul. For years, the door swung open and banged shut. Whoosh, bang, whoosh, bang, whoosh, bang, whoosh, bang. Slowly, words like tender hands squeezed through the iron bars. Ever so gently, they turned my shoulders and with them my body. Finally, I lifted my eyes and my soul sang with joy like sunlight. All this time, I had been clinging to angry walls and there were only three. Thank you. I am Ali Stinas. I'm a sophomore at Seattle Pacific University. I'm a business management major with the hope of going on to receive my master's in social and sustainable management. I'm a competitive horseback rider who aspires to compete internationally in dressage on the United States paraquestrian team. I am a follower and believer in Christ who desires every morning to be nothing more than his hands and feet. 
but all of these pieces of my, my identity are automatically stripped away from me when one word is brought into the conversation. I am also blind. Why is it that one word has the power to minimalize every other piece of my identity? Why is it that when I walk down the street with my guide dog, Wesley, I am over and over again asked, are you training that dog for a blind person? Because there's no possibility, obviously, that I could be blind, actually blind. As if blind people are some kind of elusive Sasquatch creature that simply avoid social interaction. Society tells us blind people to return to our bat cave with our cane-wielding, braille-reading blind pals. I'll be totally honest with you. This isn't going to work for me. I have way too much to accomplish in this life to stay within the bounds that society wants to put me in. Too much to do in this life to stick in the box that I'm expected to be in. Now, all of us have some form of disability, whether it's a gluten allergy that keeps you from eating cake at your best friend's wedding. All of us have some form of disability. Mine just happens to be something that prevents me from driving a car, but maybe not for much longer. And I think that all of us know in our hearts that these things do not restrict us from doing what we want to do, and they definitely do not define us. I believe that instead of being defined by these minuscule things that impact our lives, but don't define us, we should be defined and identified by the way in which we choose to live our lives. Let us not shy away from what we don't understand. Let us not identify people by things that they don't identify themselves with. And let us not let society put us in these societal boxes. I'll leave you with words from my homegirl, Helen Keller. <laughs> Never bend your head. Hold it high. Look the world straight in the eye. Thank you. I am really glad to see everybody here. This is a great turnout, thank you. Um, let's give our students, amazing SPU students, one more round of applause. So we're really proud and excited to have Cyrus here for our first annual event of its kind. This is um, a long time in coming um, as the disability coordinator here at SPU. I've had a lot of conversations hidden behind the doors of my office and a lot of students here tonight that are, are wanting to have this conversation more openly. So I'm so glad to see so many of you here and, um, and we're in for a great treat. Cyrus, at just the age of eight, he lost his eyesight due to cancer. Um, but nonetheless, he went on to become a black belt karate, a jazz pianist, a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, an editor of the Law Review at Hale, Yale, and an attorney at a prestigious Seattle law firm. At just 33 years old, he is now Washington State's first blind lawmaker in more than 50 years. His life story is in many ways reflected in the policies he's now advocating for. 
He's a great example of how he did not allow his disability to become a limitation or a boundary. It is with great excitement that we have the privilege of hearing from Mr. Habib tonight. And at the conclusion of his talk, we will have um, a time for Q&A. We'll have a podium and a mic, so please come up to that podium to ask your questions of Cyrus. Um, please welcome Mr. Cyrus Habib. Thank you, uh, thank you all. It's so good to be here with you. Um, thank you for the tremendous honor of being able to um, speak to you at your first annual uh, 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 disability, are we, no limits, no boundaries conference. Um, I, I can't promise uh, a, a speech that will be remembered for years and years to come, but I can tell you it's gonna be better than this speech has been in previous years, okay? I, so I can, it's the only promise I can make. Um, but no, it, it, is, it is truly such an immense honor to, to, to have this chance to talk to you all. And uh, I do hope this is just the beginning. I know we're gonna do Q&A tonight, but I hope that we can continue this discussion. I wanna be, I mean, I'm right here in town, so I wanna be a resource um, and a friend to the university and to, to, to you all as you discuss these things and build what I hope will be um, a lasting culture of uh, support for people of all abilities and disabilities. Uh, so uh, I, I wanna, rather than focus on my entire life story, which sometimes I do at speeches like this, I wanna uh, leave as much time for Q&A. So I'm just gonna tell you a few episodes from my life that maybe we can use as a, as a frame um, to understand me and my relationship with having a disability, um, I think it's, it's kind of helpful to understand my background. My parents came to the United States uh, in the 70s from Iran. Um, my dad came to go to the University of Washington in 1970. My mom came later in the decade um, to go to law school uh, at the University of Maryland. And I was born in Baltimore. And I considered myself lucky to have been born in Baltimore, which is not something you hear all that often, um, especially these days. Um, but I'll tell you, I was lucky because um, having been diagnosed with, with retinoblastoma, which is a rare form of childhood cancer of the eye, I was able to get some amazing medical attention at Johns Hopkins. And they were um, able to save my life, um, but unfortunately not able to save my eyesight. And so I, I became completely blind um, at age eight after my second bout with cancer. And, you know, I, I often like to joke that that was in 1989 when I lost my eyesight. So all eight years that I was able to see took place in the 1980s, meaning all my visual memories are still from the 1980s, which means like everyone in this room still looks like Boy George and Cindy Lauper from some MTV throwback. Um, so uh, we then, my family moved here to the Seattle area um, shortly after that happened. And the first episode I want to tell you about um, took place shortly after that. I was in third grade at Somerset Elementary School in Bellevue. And uh, the kids, uh, you know, in every, every, and, and every elementary school, kids like to go out at recess time and play on the jungle gym and the monkey bars and the weird playground equipment. And so my school was no different. All the kids would go out. Um, rain or shine and play in the playground and I think knowing that I had just become blind and, and probably more importantly knowing that my mom is a lawyer 
and a litigator, even worse, um, they were, the school was not thrilled about me playing with the other kids on the jungle gym five feet off the ground. So they kept me by the side of the school. They kept me with the recess ladies, the recess monitors, I think is the more politically correct term, um, by the side of the school while the other kids were playing. And so, you know, anyone who knows about um, having a disability or having fought, you know, a disease like cancer or something, or, or, or even something as simple as moving across the country, let alone all three of those combined, can understand how isolating it was day after day to be denied that, that access to, to my peers and to just simple recreation. So I went home, I told my parents what had happened. My parents were as indignant as I was, and my mom took me with her to the school the next day so that I could learn how to become an advocate for myself. And she, I'll never forget this, she went to the school and she went to the principal and she said, I'm gonna teach my son, I'm gonna take him to your school on the weekends, I'm gonna teach him how to get around the playground, I'm gonna teach him how to get around the jungle gym, he's gonna learn it as well as any other kid knows it. She said, you know, it may happen, it may happen that he may slip and fall. And it may even happen that he may slip and fall and break an arm. That's a fear that any mother has. And then she said, I can fix a broken arm, I can never fix a broken spirit. You know, that was the first and central lesson for me of how I was to proceed. This was just, just a few months after I became blind. Um, you know, and you heard Ali talk about this, and you, you know, really, you heard, and I, by the way, I just wanna say, um, nothing I'm able to say is as poetic as what we heard uh, from Garrett and Allie and Amanda. Can we give them one more round of applause? <laughs> but, you know, you heard them describe that. You heard them describe how this gets at the very spirit. And so the first lesson that I learned was that um, as strong as the urge is to protect and to shield, and this is a Christian university, so there is a, there is a, there's a, there's a very, very compassionate Christian desire to... Uh, to protect and to save and to nurture, um, but that taken, taken um, too far, um, that ultimately can rob us of our own humanity, our own need to go out and take risks and maybe even break an arm, just like any other kid. That's part of being human. It's part of being human to experience the friction of life. And so, you know, I remember a couple of years after that, it was... All the kids were going to ski school. They were going up to Ski Acres and Snoqualmie and, uh, on the weekends. And so I wanted to do that. My, um, you know, my, my dad wanted me to do that. And so we had to figure out, well, how are we going to do this? So he signed up to be a chaperone for all the kids so that I wouldn't feel bad that my dad was coming with me. So he, we went up to the slopes and we'd you know, take the ski lift up and he'd describe the slope that we were about to ski. And then he'd ski like 15, 20 feet behind me and just yell out, left, right, left, right, cliff. And, which, which is a lot like politics. People yelling at you, left, right, left, right, cliff, pretty much sums up what's happening in DC and Olympia. Um, so, you know, but the, it was, those things are scary for a parent. It was scary for them to send me to New York City at age 18 to go to college and take the subway on my own or for me to go to Guatemala on my own to go learn Spanish. Those things are frightening and I know that 
as their only child. I know that, that I was definitely a source of stress for them. But I, I also know that, that they understood how important it was that I get up on the playground, get out on the playground of life, get up on the jungle gym of life, and take those risks. Second episode in my development comes years later. And uh, I did say on Twitter, I think I tweeted back at Seattle Pacific University's Twitter account and said that I might overshare tonight if I like the audience. So I'm gonna overshare just a little bit. Um, so uh, it's, not, it's not too much, don't get worried. Um, so I, you know, so I, I was in grad school, I was over in, um, in England going to grad school, and you know, I'd really taken this lesson of the playground to heart by this point, right? And I was really, really of the kind of, of the school of thought that I had to just assimilate as much as possible. And that it was so important to get on the playground that like, I, I actually didn't want people to even know that I was blind. Like that, 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 that story that Ali mentioned about like people not knowing that she's blind, like I would have, I would have loved that, you know? Cause I was just so eager to fit in um, and for it to be like a non-issue. And so I remember one night in grad school and we're at, at a pub um, Oxford's not a dry campus, by the way. Um, so we're, we're at a pub, and we're, 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 you know, we're having some drinks, and you know, these girls come over, and they're talking to us, and you know, I can tell that this girl who's talking to me like, does not know that I'm blind, right? Like she's saying things like, oh, like, you know, look at that guy, or you know, she's just kind of saying things, and I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, any, you know, I'm not, letting her know either, right? So then, so then um, she says something like, you know, oh, so I just have to ask you, like, why are you wearing sunglasses inside? Do you think you're some kind of American hotshot or something like that? And I'm not gonna do the British accent, but, um, but you know, she says something like, you think, and, and, you know, I was just at this moment and I, and I just said something like, well, you know, I just, part of my outfit or whatever. So in any case, they, 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 they left uh, and you know, whatever, the, the night went on and, and my friend who was with me said, why didn't you just say you're blind? You know, why didn't you just let her know? What's the big deal? You know, and I said, well, I, I just figured that, you know, that would kind of kill the attraction. You know, that would like, kill the moment, you know, if I said that. And he said, I'm gonna, t I'm gonna tell you about a book that's gonna completely change your life, okay? It's not the Bible, but it's another book that'll change your life. Um, it's, called, it's called The Ant and the Peacock. It's by a British, it's a British anthropologist named Helena Cronin. Um, and what, it, what the book describes is two creatures, uh, any guesses? The Ant and the Peacock. Um, and how they have confounded, and I don't feel bad about, this is a university, so I'm gonna go a little like scholastic here. Um, they, they both have confounded evolutionary biologists for over 100 years because they can't, even Darwin could not figure out the, 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 the aspects, the two very specific aspects of these creatures, respectively. For the ant, altruism, which I don't have time to get into right now, but it's a whole other discussion. Um, and for the peacock, the idea of beauty, which is a disability for the peacock, right? The, 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 so it turns out when peahens, find peacocks with which to make, with whom to make pea babies. <laughs> they actually are looking for the more beautiful, brilliant plumage, right? Be like beautiful, brilliant 
you know, multicolored feathers that, um, and whereas in nature, obviously that would be, you know, the whole name of the game when you're in the state of nature is camouflage, right? You're not trying to stand out, um, you know, unless you're the, at the head of the food chain. Um, so so, so they couldn't understand why is it? Why doesn't she go for the camouflage one so her babies will be safer? Um, well, it turns out that this is her theory, okay, but I choose to believe in it um, as the amateur anthropologist that I am. But that, that, you know, that there is something about resilience. There's something about having a no limits, no boundaries approach to life, of overcoming, of living to a certain, frankly, living to a certain age, despite the disability in nature, is itself a, a, a trait that is sexually selected for by the peahen. And, and he was absolutely right. Because, and what he said was, you know, my friend said, you know, this is the point. You need to not be ashamed that you're a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, and that, but that you're blind. But you should be proud that you are and that you're blind. And that's going to be the source of attraction, not just... For, for women, but for employers, for law schools, um, for anybody. I mean, maybe even for you guys as you thought about who to invite here tonight, right? So it's not something to be ashamed of. It can be a source of pride because people look at you and say, okay, you've managed to do these things. All right, so that's the second kind of episode, right? So I went from one extreme to another extreme and then trying to modulate to get to some sort of more productive understanding of what it means to have a disability. Which gets me to, um, and I'll just very briefly describe my first, ad, which gets me to advocacy, because it wasn't until I became an advocate, which then laid the groundwork for me running for, for, for the legislature, um, that I really truly understood um, what tremendous power we have as people who care about this. So I was in law school, my first year of law school, wireless was like brand new then that year. And so all the kids would sit in law school in class and like, and like G-chat and be on Facebook and whatever while class was going on. And so I was, uh, and I have software on my computer that reads what's on the screen. And so I had my, you know, I had one little earbud in and I'm listening to whatever it was I was listening to. And I went to the New York Times website while I'm in a class called Civil Procedures, it's so boring, and I go decide I'm going to go to New the New York Times website to just see what's in the news. And so I find this article about a lawsuit that's being brought by the American Council of the Blind against the U.S. Treasury Department, alleging that U.S. currency, the bills that we use, $5 bills, $10 bills, $20 bills, are discriminatory because they, are, they cannot be denominated, they can't be distinguished by blind and low vision Americans, and they are a public service, they are public good. Um, and this really resonated with me because I just moved back from England where, you know, as in every other industrialized country, bills are distinguishable. So I was really fascinated. I went to the law school dean and I said, oh, I really want to get involved with this in some way, and he helped me get involved. Uh, I went and found what's called a friend of the, a, a friend of the court, I found like an uninvolved party and decided to represent them and write a brief. And the, the point that I made was, this is how I became an advocate, was I, what, I, what I stumbled upon was this idea that, okay, I think we all understand that it's not fair if I go to Starbucks, for example, and I'm not picking on Starbucks, just using it as an example, if I go to Starbucks and I buy a cup of coffee 
and I give them a $20 bill, and they give me back as change four pieces of paper, right? Then I'm hoping that those four bills are three fives and a one, but I don't know it, right? So I think that the blind consumer is something that was the, kind of the point of this lawsuit. But what I realized was that, you know what's even more pernicious than the blind consumer being shut out? What about the person on the other side of the cash register? What about the fact that nearly all entry-level jobs in this country re require the ability to tell one bill from another, to be able to make change? And that all those jobs were being blocked off to people who were blind and low vision. And if you block off entry-level jobs, you make it that much harder for someone to get their next job. And that might explain why in 2007, this is before the downturn, there was a 70% unemployment rate among blind and low vision Americans of working age. 70%, that's before the downturn. So that was the argument that I made. Um, we were very fortunate that it won over. It had the added benefit of being an argument that, I, that, cons that a conservative judge would like because it was all about, hey, let's get people to work, right? Rather than like staying at home on social security, like this way they can go out and work, they wanna work. Um, and you know what? We did get a conservative vote on the bench that we needed and we won that case in federal appellate court. And I went to Congress, and I'll just say this as an aside, that you know, then uh, you'll wonder why this has not yet happened. <laughs> um, and that's, that's because there's politicians in the world. Um, and I teach a whole class on this, but I'll just say I went to Congress and the whole debate was about, well, how can we change the currency? Um, the vending machine lobby of all people showed up in opposition to changing currency. Um, and the, the best proposal I heard was, well, why don't we just cut different numbers of corners off the bills so that we can know without changing the shape of the bills? Which I just love because I love Congress being honest about cutting corners. <laughs> uh, so, so these are these three episodes, I just wanted to say, so th this is kind of how I came to mind No Limits, No Boundaries uh, understanding, which is first, it's important to have the opportunity to go out there and take risks and not be oversheltered um, and, and locked, uh, at, you know, or kept by the side of the school. Um, it's important to, in, 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 in trying to fit in, not um, turn away from a very critical aspect of one's identity um, in, in hopes that it'll just go away. And then once you balance those two, which is, you know, it took me, you know, 26, 7, 28 years at that point, but once you do that, then how do you take that understanding and allow it and, 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 and in such a way that you, you're allowed to go out and make the world a better place for, for other people, either with that same disability or with different abilities or disabilities. And they could be very small things like changing currency, a little pocket of injustice, or they could be bigger things like making sure that we have transit so that people, that's adequate so that people can get to and from work if they have a disability making sure that we have schools with small enough classes that teachers can teach kids with all different sorts of needs without having them pulled out and taken into a different room. Making sure that access to technology is there so that when a person wants to start their own business or go work somewhere, they can get the adaptive technology they need. And what I want to close on is that as you do these things, as we do these things, we make that move from a kind of personal reconciliation of what it means to live with uh, various abilities and disabilities to the more um, public service and public-minded and mission-oriented work that you all are gonna do, I'm positive, here on campus and out in the community. 
I would say the, the most important thing to keep at the center of what you do is tremendous gratitude, which has taken me so long to cultivate myself. I'm an only child and a Leo. Um, and, you know, I was born in the year of the rooster. And I've just, I was, gratitude and humility were not the first uh, uh, virtues that came to me. But, but, but here's, here's the thing, okay? The easiest thing in the world for me to, to do would be to stand up here and tell you guys, you know, after that nice introduction, you know what? I did do all those things. I did win a Rhodes Scholarship. I did go to Yale. I did, you know, I did all those things. Uh, I am a state senator. And you know what? I did them all on my own. Did them all on my own. And that made me feel great. And I think there's, there's a ton of my colleagues in the legislature and in politics. I won't mention which party. But there are some who will say people ought to be able to do it themselves. This is, you know, it was after all it was the Declaration of Independence. Well, I think a more true name for it would have been the Declaration of Interdependence. Because I know that as easy as it would be for me to stand up here and tell you that I did it all on my own, the only problem is I know it's not true. I knew if it weren't for the Department of Services for the Blind teaching me how to use a cane, um, I think that means I'm out of time. But I, if, it weren't for, if it weren't for that, then I wouldn't have learned how to use a cane. If it weren't for the state school for the blind where I used to go down and get trained on software, I wouldn't be able to use my computer. And if it weren't for the Washington Talking Book and Braille Library, I would have never learned to read. If it weren't for teachers in public schools, I would have never been able to go from Braille to Yale. So I have tremendous gratitude. And if we do that, if we put that at the center of our work, if we remember, as the sign on I-5 says that I love so much, it says, you're not stuck in traffic, you are traffic, that we are all beneficiaries of tremendous work that's been done by others, then we can pay it forward to others. So I want to leave you with that. As you take tonight as the beginning of this mission, let's take disability awareness and turn it into disability action. I want to be with you as you do all of that. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to answer your questions. Thank you. My name is Mary Peterson, senior at Seattle Pacific University. Um, my question is about um, the viral video that's going around about the 29-year-old woman that hears for the first time. And I wanted to hear how you think um, of the video, if you think that individuals that have disabilities need fixing or things like that. Um, so, of course, the first question is asking about like something I don't know about. So I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen. I don't. I don't know that YouTube video. But I think the question was well framed, so I can struggle through. Um, so, um, so let's think back to um, the most famous instance of blindness in the New Testament, right? What does Christ do? Right? He sees a, he sees a blind beggar. And what does he do? He heals him. Um, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, he doesn't, so, I mean, the important, the, the, the most important thing that he does at the beginning is says, you know, you didn't, neither you sinned nor your parents sinned, okay? So that was important because um, still to this day in many parts of the world, it's viewed as a, uh, some either karmic retribution or, uh, you know, a, a payback for a sin. But then, he, but, then he, but then he heals this guy, right? Like actually opens his eyes, like literally, Right, and and it's supposed to stand there for as kind of you know figurative enlightenment. He sees the risen, you know, he sees he sees Christ doing this work. Well, 
what that's done, I mean, what that, that speaks to a desire, I think, in all of us to understand that um, these disabilities, these physical you know, impairments of various kinds, whatever term you want to use, these challenges um, are things that, that uh, you know, kind of n naturally we want to make better. And I am of the mindset, this is me personally, um, that like if someone were to come and give me a pill, someone's like, there's a pill that would allow you um, to see again, would, would I take it? I would 100% take it. I, I don't think for one second that like this is, um, I, I won't give this aspect of my personality enough like merit or honor it to the point that I would say without you know, it's not like a sexual orientation. Do you know what I mean? It's not like, it's something that happened because I had cancer, right? And, and, and God willing, we'll cure cancer and people won't get, or, or will be treated or be vaccinated against it and no one will have that happen the way it happened to me. You know, does that mean that I regret my life or that I wish, you know, that, that you know, or that I look back at my life in a, you know, with sorrow? No. I'm, I am, I mean, I, I, I do believe that like the peacock, I have, you know, managed to, 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 to power through and that there's something beautiful about that. But um, that doesn't mean for me personally that there's some virtue or honor in, in you know, uh, kind of carrying this on if, if, if it were possible not to. So that's just my personal view. But it's a very, very personal thing to people. You know, because, and all identity is, and I, I recommend, by the way, um, a book to, to, to all of you called Far From the Tree, um, which came out a couple years ago, um, and I'm trying to think of the author's name, Andrew, um, meet somebody, Solomon, thank you, Andrew Solomon, yeah, and it's vast, and uh, you don't need to read all of it, but it's got, like, a chapter on each of a various sort, of, a various sorts of, not just disabilities, but um, horiz uh, uh, horizontal identities, meaning identities that you don't share with your parents necessarily. And he goes into elaborate discussion of this topic, theoretically, of, you know, uh, because people are different. You know. So if you're African-American, your parents, your biological parents are also African-American, um, your community uh, is likely to be, you know, your extended family obviously is likely to be African-American. Like, you're not going to want to not be African-American unless maybe you're Michael Jackson. Um, but you, generally, you're not, right? And, and sexual orientation, um, while horizontal, has its own, you know, ha has its own aspects that are, I think, closer, more closely tied to identity. Disability, to me, is, is not like that. It usually originates in some sort of pain or trauma, um, and so that's just where I'm at. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Hi. Um, I was wondering what specific laws are you working on now um, that have to do with your personal story or because of your personal story? Sure. Um, well, I'm working on the, the bill that's kind of nearest and dearest to my heart, uh, but which is the kind of the hardest to do, um, has to do with cancer research because uh, I'm a three-time cancer survivor. My dad is fighting cancer as we speak. Um, and so I have a bill introduced, it's, um, uh, and it's managed to move through part of the legislative process um, and has got broad support, but is still going to be challenging, which would raise the uh, cigarette tax by 50 cents to fund basic research in cancer at the Hutch, at UW, at WSU, 
um, anywhere. It could be at Seattle Pacific U if you're doing if you're doing um, medical research of any type or even you know biological research. So um, that's that's one that's very important to me. I'm on the Governor's Disability Employment Task Force. We are looking at ways. Uh, to improve disability employment, both in the public and private sector. Um, I-Prime sponsored a bill, which ultimately passed um, in a kind of uh, weaker form, but which would allow our state to take advantage of the Federal ABLE Act, which was passed by Congress this last year, which allows um, tax-free savings of, for people with disabilities um, for uh, technology or you know, accommodations of various kinds. Um, without it affecting their, uh, without that income counting towards social security limits. So, uh, so th those are a few, but I'm also very eager to hear from you guys what I could be doing for any of you or for your friends or family members down in Olympia. So if you have better or different ideas, definitely let me know. Cool, thank you. Thank you. Does anybody else have questions? Please feel free to come up. Okay. Um, hi, my name is Leah Fox. I'm studying special education here at um, Seattle Pacific University. My question is if you could give us an example of maybe some accommodations that you had in school to make you so successful, or if you have a story about a teacher that particularly motivated you to be that how you are today. Um, well, I've got a number of them. In fact, I was just uh, with my legislative assistant. I was just talking to her about uh, a guy who is a, my, one of my orientation and mobility instructors, and they're the, the, the people who help you learn how to use a cane, um, uh, or, or I suppose, or a seeing eye dog to get around, um, and how um, you know, all of the mobility instructors that I had before always wanted, me to, always wanted to teach me how to walk around these like sleepy residential neighborhoods in Bellevue, um, like near where I grew up, which is like, you know, soul-crushingly boring, right? Like, like I crossed 143rd Avenue Southeast, um, you know, and, and, but he showed up and he was brand new and he showed up and he's like, why would we ever do that? I'm gonna take you to Seattle. And we came and we went to like the U District and we went to Capitol Hill and I just was like, oh my God, this is so funny. He's like, and he's like, um, and he was from New York. He'd come moved here from New York. And I was, and he's like, oh, you could absolutely live. He's like, New York is so easy to get around if you have a disability. And it actually is um, quite easy to get around because there's so much density. There's so many people all around that like, A, everyone's bumping into each other anyway, right? And then B, like everyone's always, the other thing that's very interesting about New York is that there's absolutely no, you know, here we're so like, this is Seattle freeze, kind of awkwardness with people. Um, and New York is like the total opposite. So like in New York, there's absolutely no sense of personal space whatsoever. So like, I remember when I first got to, to New York, I went to Manhattan, I was walking around and like, you know, it, it, the, the one thing that's a little scary about New York is that all of a sudden there'll be like a manhole where they're like working on something right in the street. So I'm walking and this guy just comes up to me and like physically moves me into a different direction. Like, didn't even say anything. Like, just like does it, you know? And it's like such a New York thing to do. You know, whereas like in Seattle, like there'd be like five people kind of awkwardly, you know, kind of standing there like, well, what do we do? You know, I don't wanna, um, I don't wanna like invade your privacy or whatever. So, 
Um, so that was like a really, that mobility instructor, but I had, a, you know, I had another teacher um, who I'm still in touch with who um, I was taking a French class and he was really into geography and like really into us learning like the geography of France. Um, and so he would like stay and he, and I kept being like, oh, maybe I'll get out of doing this, you know, like, because this is like, really, it was like the hardest part of the class was like memorizing. I still remember to this day, these rivers in France, La Dordogne and La Garogne and all these things. I could still, but I was like, maybe I'd get out of this. And he was like, there's no way you're getting out of this. He would stay after class and like create these maps with like a glue gun and with like sandpaper and with all these things, like you are gonna learn. It was like, for whatever reason, just really important to him that I learned <laughs> like the mountains and the rivers and the like cities in France. Um, but, but that was awesome. I mean, it was just awesome to have somebody be like, you're gonna do this, we're gonna figure out a way, just like my mom did on the playground. So, so those, are my, those are my kind of best stories. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, thank you for your talk. My name is Robin Reedy, and I'm the Assistant Director of Educational Technology and Media. So my office is sort of charged with a little bit of helping with accessible technology. And I'm putting together a resource on universal design for instruction and hopefully a one-day workshop in the summer for universal design for instruction, which is about helping uh, faculty make their classes more inclusive and accessible for people um, with all sorts of abilities. And so I was wondering if you have any practical tips as I'm putting together this resource in this workshop. Oh, geez. Um, I have so okay, practical, well, let me give you like a totally non-practical uh, tip actually because um, so let me tell you why this is like so, um, so you know, I did not use PowerPoint. Um, uh, and I never do, and, and I'll tell you, I think that there's a trend now, and I don't think it's out of like compassion or like progressive values, I think it's just people are like tired of public speakers who all they do is just kind of like click from frame to frame, and then like, you know, just kind of almost like a conductor as opposed to a speaker. Um, and so there's kind of been a move towards just less reliance on that which I think is a good thing, but I think it also speaks, I think PowerPoint's totally fine. I think it's actually good because I think, you know, the, the whole point is to do both, right? The whole point is that some people learn better visually and some people learn better orally. And like, it only helps you as a presenter if you can do both of those things. Because there are probably people here who are visual learners who zoned out right around the playground story. You know what I mean? Because it was like, well, I'm, you know, he just keeps talking and there's no pictures to look at. That's not bad, that's just how some people learn differently. So I think it's, for instruction, um, I think it's probably, uh, to try to get somewhat practical, um, I think I, I would just say, you know, maybe trying to get people to, challenging people to try all types of extremes, you know? Doing things just, you know, just in a, collaborative way, doing things in a lecture format, doing things in a visual, you know, with, with pictures, doing things just spoken word. Um, if you go back to the center of our culture, whether it's the Judeo-Christian tradition, right, what are the first words that God utters? Let there be light, right? Or if you go back to the, the, the Greco-Roman tradition, right, Plato and the allegory of the cave, in, in, enlightenment, illumination, 
Visuality is central to our culture. And I've struggled for years because it always, always has pride of place. It always has primacy. I've struggled for years to try to say, let's balance that with you know, the spoken word. There are entire cultures, non-Western cultures, that put that first and foremost. So I think we need, to, we need to be a little more imaginative, a little more creative, and maybe challenging people who are studying this to, to experiment a little bit um, can get there. Great, thank you. So we will have just one last question. Um, my question is regarding church. Um, I wanted to know how your experience has been in the church, um, if you have any stories to share about that, and what are ways that the church can become more inviting? What instructions would you have for ministers or people of the gospel? Wait, was I billed as someone who knows about, like, <laughs> about religious life because I'm a, um, a cafeteria Catholic? Um, so so um, here's what I'll, um, how is the experience going to try? Well, let me tell you one thing is um, whenever that gospel reading comes up, which is every year because, you know, uh, we're Catholic, so we have to do things the same way <laughs> every year. So it comes up, I always feel like incredibly self-conscious because I'm sitting there in St. James Cathedral and there's like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I'm like, I'm definitely the only blind, or like maybe there's one other blind person, but like I think I'm the only blind person here. Like everyone must be, it's long, it's like one of the longest gospel passages that's read. So um, that's really the only time that I think that I've felt, um, you know, that I ever feel like any level of, you know, self-consciousness. I think that for me, and this is just unique to like, to, to Catholicism is that like, it is a religion that is very polysensory. Like it is very, you know, they always say smells and bells. There's lots of, you know, um, there's lots of music, there's lots of incense, there's lots of like theatrics. And like, so I, I always find it a very like rich experience. I think that even, um, you know, non-Catholic, even like Protestant or um, Anglican or Orthodox um, uh, Christian sects, I think are um, also, you know, very, very inclined to the spoken word. Um, because as much as let there be light is the, is the origin um, the, the gospel according to John makes it clear that Christ is the word made flesh, right? So in the New Testament, um, it, put, it brings it into, right, logos, right, language, and the word um, becomes central, which I think is, you know, probably a product of the fact these were Greek people writing in Greek. So, um, so anyway, I think that that's, uh, I, I keep wandering into theory because I love being at a university and I get nostalgic for thinking these things. But I think that, Christi you know, I think that Christianity... Um, um, I spoke about this a little bit. I think that um, what the risk is that in a desire to be um, radically empathetic, which is you know what Christ asks of us, right? Which is to be kind of you know radically empathetic with one's neighbor, with and with everyone. There is a desire. I think there is a tendency sometimes to get into a kind of. Um, to make that empathy, turn that into sympathy um, that comes from, you know, kindness, that comes from compassion. Um, but think about my French teacher, you know. There also needs to be that tough love. There needs to be um, that, that, you know, that kind of that sense of, um, you know, you're, you're just as much a person as I am. You know, you can be a jerk just as much as I can be a jerk. You're a sinner just like I'm a sinner. 
right? So I think that's, a, that, that's something that I've experienced amongst you know, my friends, the more, kind of more devout and some of the, more, the older, more devout you know, Christians is that you know, they will be so kind, so generous, the first to give a helping hand, but, um, but, but not necessarily as kind of progressive in the way that I think like my gener- the ADA generation, and we do celebrate the 25th anniversary this year, that that generation views uh, this ability. It's, I think it's a little different. So there's definitely work to be done there. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for having me. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to hear the students, student speakers and, and your uh, keynote speakers um, in future years. Uh, so I'll just be sitting kind of in the back. Um, but I will always remember that at one point I had given the best speech ever given at this event. So thank you so much. Thank you. That was fantastic. We are so grateful. Let's give Cyrus another round of applause as he leaves. Thank you all for coming tonight. I hope that our conversation continues. Um, I'm so grateful that we have Allie, Amanda, and Garrett that shared tonight. Amanda and Garrett will be part of our student government next year, so we know that Allie. So we know that these are conversations that want, that, that can be had. Um, personally, I know so many of you in the room have so many thoughts going on, and I imagine that I'll see some of you in my office soon, and I hope that we can maybe move the conversation outside of my office and into the greater population here. Um, please stick around and look through the exhibit, if you please, tonight. Um, the exhibit will be in Eaton Hall tomorrow and Thursday for you to look at as well, to reflect, write down your thoughts. You can tweet to us or just walk over to the Center for Learning to chat with us. But thank you again for everyone for coming tonight.